Good morning. He is risen. In solidarity with Christians all over the world, and for the last 2,000 years, we celebrate and confess today and every Sunday that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He is risen. He is risen this morning, I want us to think about the question, why is belief in the resurrection important? The resurrection is the central truth of Christianity. Without the resurrection of Jesus, there would be no divine forgiveness for sin. There would be no hope of heaven or of eternal life. Jesus would be proven to be either a liar or a lunatic. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, at best, we are all just clumps of matter, and when the day comes that we die, we will simply cease to exist, or at worst, we will all die in our sin and face the eternal judgment of God who has given us life and to whom we are all accountable. So how can we know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true? Well, God has not left us without evidence. Ample evidence, in fact. God has given us a true record of the events surrounding Christ's resurrection. And this record continues to provide compelling evidence to the truth that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. This morning, we're going to, as it were, put the resurrection of Jesus on trial and see if it can stand up to close scrutiny. We're going to hear from several different kinds of witnesses that testify to the truthfulness of the resurrection. And for this, I want you to turn in your Bibles along with me to John chapter 10. Sorry, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to focus on verses 1 through 10 this morning, but to set the context, I want us to go back to chapter 19 and verse 40. Jesus is dead on the cross. When we get to chapter 19 and verse 40. So, chapter 19, verse 40 of John's Gospel, John 19, 40 says, So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran a 
faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stopping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there and he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we serve a risen Savior. We thank you that you hear our prayers today because you are alive forevermore. We thank you that you are in possession of all authority given to you by the Father. You possess the keys to death and to hell. You have authority over all things. We confess that you have authority over our lives as well and that we are accountable to you. What we believe about the resurrection matters for eternity. You have left us many infallible proofs, plenty of evidence to show us what is true. Teach us today, Lord. Use your spirit to convict our hearts, to open our eyes and see the truth, perhaps for the first time, perhaps in a way we've never seen it before. Convince our hearts, Lord, and move us to faith. Perhaps the first step of faith this morning, or perhaps a deeper faith this morning. Grow us in our conviction about the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And may that conviction show itself in the way we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. This morning, as we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ and put it on trial, as it were, I want us to hear from three kinds of witnesses that continue to testify to us to both the historicity and the saving power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that, having heard from them, these witnesses, the unbelieving will be brought to faith in Jesus And so that the believing will have their faith strengthened. That's what we're going to do this morning from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. All right, let's look at these three witnesses. Let's call them to the stand. The first kind of witness we're going to hear from is the witness of eyewitness testimony. The witness to Christ's resurrection that comes from eyewitness testimony. Now, the first eyewitness to the resurrection was a woman, Mary Magdalene. There's a lot of Marys in the story. There's a lot of Jameses in the story. But this Mary was a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. And it followed Jesus throughout his public ministry, meeting many practical needs along the way. Let me just read for you from Luke chapter 8 to give you a little background on this Mary. 
Soon afterwards, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna, the wife of, of Chusa, Herod Stewart and Susanna and many others were contributing to their support out of their private means. So here is this Mary whose, whose life has been forever changed by Jesus. She was inflicted with this terrible demonic possession of seven demons and Jesus had radically changed her life by freeing her from this slavery. And she devoted her life, her time, her finances to serving and supporting Jesus and his public ministry from that time on. John tells us here in John chapter 20 that she came to the tomb, Joseph's tomb, on the first day of the week, Sunday morning. Mary Magdalene had been at the foot of the cross And she had witnessed the death of Christ on Friday afternoon. According to Mark's gospel, she was also in the garden at the site of this tomb when Jesus was buried and the stone was rolled in front of the entrance. Mark says that Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped Jesus in a linen cloth and laid him in the tomb which had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Yosef, were looking on to see where he was laid. So Mary Magdalene was there when the tomb was sealed, when Jesus was placed inside and that stone was rolled over the face of it. Mary was not a new disciple. She had been there with Jesus for pretty much everything. An eyewitness to nearly all that had taken place throughout the course of Jesus' public ministry. And of course, she was there at the cross. And she was there when Jesus' lifeless body was laid inside the tomb. She was there when that stone was rolled in front of the mouth of that tomb. As the sun went down and the Sabbath began, Mary likely spent all day Saturday in quiet, mournful reflection on the events she had just been witness to. And as the sun began to rise on that Sunday morning, she walked to the tomb with spices in hand to finish the job that they had hurriedly done on Friday night ahead of the Sabbath, unaware what she would witness next. John says that Mary came early to the tomb, and he details this further by saying, while it was still dark. This is probably an indication of when she left and set out for the tomb. The sun was just coming up. As she arrived at the tomb, she saw that the stone had been rolled away. Now this was definitely not normal. John tells us that Mary left there, astonished at what she had seen. And she ran in search of Peter and of John. Mary was an eyewitness to the crucifixion, an eyewitness to the burial, and the first eyewitness to the empty tomb. Later on in verse 16, if you read ahead, you'll learn that Mary was the first eyewitness to actually see the risen Christ. Not only was she the first one to see the empty tomb, she was the first one to see Christ alive 
risen. Victorious. Now, if you were making all of this up out of whole cloth, trying to create a religion based on the teachings of Jesus, you would not want the first eyewitness to be a woman. Not in the first century. Not in first century Judaism. Women were not equally respected to men. And their testimony was not generally admissible under Jewish law. And then again, not just any woman is chosen as the first eyewitness here, but a woman with a checkered past who had been possessed by seven demons. And yet, this is precisely who Jesus first appeared to, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It speaks to the credibility of the story that she is the very first eyewitness to the resurrection, the very first eyewitness to the empty tomb. And it speaks to the grace and mercy of God allowing this woman, Mary Magdalene, a woman with a messy past, to be the very first eyewitness to these world-changing events. But she's not the only eyewitness. A second and third eyewitness to the empty tomb are mentioned beginning in verse 2. Peter and John. John, the beloved disciple. How he loves to refer to himself. I would too. (laughs) Mary ran. There's a lot of running in this text. Mary ran to Peter and John and, and found them. It was probably difficult for her to speak when she finally located them because she was so distraught and out of breath. But she managed to get the words out. They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. You know, at this point, Mary's going, somebody's, somebody's messed with the body of Jesus. He's still dead, so she thinks. We don't know where he is. I've got a job to do. I want to pay him respects and Treat the body with the dignity and honor that it deserves, but I don't know where they've laid him. Having heard this remarkable report, John tells us in verse 3 that he and Peter took off in the direction of the tomb, and it's a foot race. Now notice that John is careful to mention this detail in verse 4, that he broke away and ran ahead of Peter, arriving at the tomb first. That's kind of a weird flex, but okay. (laughs) Having arrived there first, did I mention that John was first? John tells us what he did in verse 5. John observes the inside of the tomb, but does not go in. Now in verse 6, we see that Peter arrives at the tomb. Took him long enough. Unlike John, though, and in keeping with his forceful personality, Peter gets to the tomb and he goes right in. He doesn't wait to the outside. John may be thinking, this is a crime scene. Peter says, i got to find out what's going on. Both men saw the linen wrappings lying inside that had been used to bind Jesus' dead body only days before. What was most significant, however, about what they saw was what they did not see. 
What they did not see was the body of Jesus, for Jesus' body was no longer there. Here in the opening verses of John 20, we have the accounts of three eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John. All three witnessed the stone rolled away from the entrance. All three knew that Jesus was no longer in that grave. But as you know, these were not the only witnesses to the empty tomb or to the resurrected Christ. The scriptures refer to at least 10 separate appearances of Christ after his resurrection and before his ascension. There were doubtless more, but these 10 are the recorded ones. He appeared first of all to Mary Magdalene at the tomb. Second, he appeared to Mary, the mother of James the less, or James the younger. Thirdly, he appeared to Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus. Fourthly, he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the ten disciples who were gathered, Thomas being absent, Judas being dead. Eight days later, he appeared to all eleven disciples, this time with Thomas present. Then he appeared to seven disciples by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. He then appeared to more than 500 disciples. He appeared to James, probably the James that was the Lord's half-brother. And again, to the apostles when he ascended into heaven. These appearances all occurred over a 40-day period between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 says, To these Jesus also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Then after his ascension, Jesus also appeared to Paul. The next time Jesus appears, it will be at his second coming, when all will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. What is the point of all this? The point is this. The empty tomb and the resurrected Christ together form one of the best attested events in ancient history with over 500 eyewitness accounts seeing the resurrected Jesus over a period of 40 days. Specific dates and times are given. Eyewitnesses are specifically named. Intricate details of what they saw were recorded and meticulously described. And all of these things were written down at a time when the first readers could have gone back and done their own first-hand research and investigation, checking sources, verifying details with these living eyewitnesses. If you wanted to make up a story about Jesus' resurrection, you wouldn't actually want to include this many witnesses. It's been said that two people can keep a secret if one of them is dead. It would be impossible to create a false narrative about Jesus' resurrection and then have over 500 people keep their story straight about it. 
So if it had all been made up, it would have been very simple to discredit these accounts of Jesus' resurrection. There would have been plenty of people saying, yeah, I know initially I said I saw these things, but I really didn't. But these eyewitness accounts were not discredited. And on the basis of these eyewitness accounts, many came to believe on Jesus and believed in it so intently that they were willing to die for what they believed. People don't die for a lie. You give your life for what you believe in, for what you believe is true. Charles Spurgeon said this, The resurrection is a fact better attested than any event recorded in history, whether ancient or modern. You say, well, that, yeah, that was back in the 1860s or something like that. Well, here's a, a more modern attestation. British theologian and historian Michael Green, a graduate of both Cambridge and Oxford, has stated that the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus are as well authenticated as anything in antiquity. There can be no rational doubt that they occurred. There can be no rational doubt that they occurred. So what are you going to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? There can be no rational doubt that it happened. We know that because of these eyewitnesses. The sheer number of them, the quality of their testimony, the veracity of it. Well, let's hear from another kind of witness, and that is the witness of physical evidence. The witness of physical evidence. The first piece of physical evidence I want to draw your attention to is the stone mentioned in verse 1. The stone that had been rolled away from the entrance to the tomb when Mary got there and when Peter and John got there. These stones, these gravestones, were large flat discs like a large millstone. And these large round stones were placed in a carved out trough in front of the tomb. When the body was placed inside, the stone could be pushed and rolled so that it moved into place in front of the door. And it was typically on an, uh, uh, on an incline so that when you rolled the stone in front of the door, it was going, the stone was going down. So it was easier to roll the stone over than it was to roll the stone back because it was an uphill battle with the stone to roll it backward. As it moved in front of the door, it would drop into a deeper notch that had been carved out so that it was seated properly in front of the door. And it would be very difficult to move out of that notch and uphill. Mark tells us that Mary Magdalene was wondering who would roll away the heavy stone for her when she got to the tomb so that she could go in and do what she needed to do and anoint the body of Jesus. And Mark 16.4 also tells us that this stone was extremely large. Not just large, but extremely large. So when Mary arrives at the tomb and sees the stone is rolled away, she is astonished and runs to find Peter and John. The fact that the stone is rolled away from the tomb is even more remarkable when we consider what Matthew records for us. Listen to this, Matthew 27.62. 
Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I'm going to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. This seal likely consisted of a cord and a wax or clay seal with the official Roman seal of imprint. This seal was not to make the tomb airtight, that wasn't the purpose, but rather to, make, to mark it as that it was not to be tampered with. And if it was tampered with, you could easily tell, for the seal would be broken. Think of it like police tape on a door. Do not enter under penalty of law. On that Sunday morning, the seal had been broken. The guards had been overcome. And the heavy stone had been rolled away. All had been overcome by supernatural power. And why was the stone rolled away? Not so much so that Jesus could get out of the tomb, for later on we are going to see that though he has a physical body, he's able to supernaturally appear to the disciples inside a locked room. Now, the stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out, but so that the disciples could get in and see for themselves and be eyewitnesses to the truth that Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty. The second piece of physical evidence I want to draw your attention to is the linen wrappings inside the tomb that both Peter and John observed. These were the long pieces of cloth that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had used to wrap Jesus' body in after his death to prepare him for burial. These are the same kind of linens that had been wrapped around Lazarus and which Jesus commanded to be removed when Lazarus was raised from the dead. John saw these linens first in verse 5 from the entrance to the tomb. Peter, having run headlong inside the tomb, viewed them more closely. With the added detail of this face cloth in verse 7. Now notice that. The linen wrappings are, are, are lying where Jesus' body had formerly been. They apparently appeared to be undisturbed. Perfectly resting where they had been before. Only without a body to give them the form they had once had. To be certain Jesus' resurrected body was a physical body, but it was also a supernatural body for it could pass through grave clothes and leave them undisturbed even as it could pass through walls and locked doors. Although it was a supernatural body, it was nonetheless his physical body, a glorified physical body, a physical body glorified. Now the detail of verse 7 is extraordinary. Unlike the linens which except for no longer being wrapped around a body, were completely undisturbed and where you would expect to find them. The face cloth, which had been on Christ's head, was carefully rolled up and in a place by itself. Jesus, after his resurrection, apparently, neatly 
rolled up the face cloth and placed it somewhere else in the tomb before he left the tomb behind once and for all. Now, some have tried to argue here that, see, Jesus was organized. I don't think that's the point. Jesus, resurrected, folded his face cloth before he left the tomb, leaving another sign, another testimony to the reality of his resurrection. Now, what's the significance of these grave clothes remaining in the tomb? Well, if someone had entered the tomb and stolen the body, they would not have gone to the trouble of removing the grave clothes placing them neatly where the body once was, and rolling the face cloth and placing it somewhere else. Supposedly this tomb is being watched. I mean, there were guards set up. How did they get past the guards? And then to take the time to to arrange it in this fashion seems impossible. These grave clothes were left behind as a sign to all that death could not keep its grip on the Son of God. That death had been swallowed up in victory. That Christ is risen. You've got to pay attention. <laughs> Finally, I want to in- introduce you to the witness of fulfilled prophecy. The witness of fulfilled prophecy. John tells us in verse 8 that he entered the tomb after Peter, that he saw, and that as a result of seeing, he believed. He was convinced. He was moved to faith. He believed what? He believed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Although it now seems amazing to us, none of the disciples were anticipating Christ's resurrection from the dead. The ruling religious authorities of Jesus' day, they believed. I mean, they heard him say it. And they took steps to prevent, you know, some kind of arrangement by the disciples to make it look as though Jesus had risen from the dead. Setting the guard, setting the seal on the tomb and all of it. So they remembered Jesus' words, but somehow the disciples were too close to really see and hear and believe. But now, John believes. Verse 9 tells us that up to this point, they did not understand the scripture that Jesus would rise from the dead. They didn't get it. Jesus had said it repeatedly, but they didn't get it. A dying Messiah, a defeated king, was not in their realm of understanding. But this is indeed what the Old Testament had prophesied of. It's what it had promised. Psalm 16.10, let me read it for you. Psalm 16.10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. It was said about David, but David died. It was speaking of the greater David and Jesus and the apostles clearly attributed this to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Listen to what Jesus said in John 2, very beginning of his ministry. John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus called his shot, right? Jesus spoke repeatedly that he was going to Jerusalem. He was going to be handed over into the hands of evil men. He was going to be crucified and die. He was going to be buried, but on the third day he would rise again. He said it repeatedly, predicting, prophesying what was to come. Listen to what Mark says in Mark 8.31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Matthew 12, 40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Three days and three nights in the heart of the earth and then rise again. Matthew 17, 22, And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Seems that they only heard the dead part, and they missed the rise again part. The angel at the tomb said to Mary in Matthew 28, 6, He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. In verse 8, John says that he entered the tomb and that having entered and seeing nobody there, he saw and believed. For John, the evidence was clear. The empty tomb, the linen wrappings, the face cloth rolled neatly and placed separately, and the prophetic words of Jesus ringing in his ears that he would die and rise again on the third day. In the face of all of this evidence, it all came together for John as he stood inside that empty tomb, and John believed. Later, after appearing to the disciples, and Thomas in particular, Jesus will say this, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. Beloved, that's us. A special blessing from Jesus for those who do not see his resurrected body and yet believe. You and I have not seen the resurrected Christ today with our eyes. But we can see it with the eyes of faith. You have heard the testimony from these three types of witnesses, the human eyewitnesses, the physical witnesses, and the scriptural prophetic witnesses. The question is, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That he died on the cross for you, for your sins, and that he has risen from the dead? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone today, now, 
for salvation. If not, why not? Because there's not enough evidence? I don't know what more evidence you need. If you are moved by the words of Scripture, by the testimony of these witnesses, ask God to save you today. Ultimately, we know that all the evidence in the world will not be enough to convince you because salvation is a work of God. And ultimately, these things are not about weighing the evidence. It's ultimately about acknowledging the truth that I am accountable to a God who gave me life and breath and all things. Ask God to do the work of salvation in you and to give you faith. And believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior for the forgiveness of sins. He is risen. risen Christian, I remind you today that your faith is not based on wishes and dreams. Your faith is not based on hearsay or myths or fairy tales. No, your faith is based on the testimony of many eyewitnesses who were there, who saw the empty tomb, who saw the risen Christ. Your faith is true. He is risen. risen That's the indeed part, right? Indeed. Because Jesus is truly risen, all his promises are true. Because Jesus is alive today, he is with us. He is in us. He is for us. He is at the right hand of the Father as our high priest and our advocate. He is risen. risen Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for leaving these many convincing proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For recording for us these truths in Holy Scripture. for preserving those scriptures through millennia down to us today. And once again, we have heard of the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And since this is true, it changes everything. It calibrates reality. It causes us to rethink our lives, our purpose, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would give faith where there has been unbelief. Where there has been skepticism and rebellion. Grant faith and submission. For the Christians here already this morning, thank you Jesus for your resurrection. Thank you for the hope, the settled certainty of the knowledge that you are alive forevermore and that you're coming again and then you're going to make all 
things right. Your resurrection guarantees it. Thank you, Jesus. We praise your glorious name. For you are risen. Amen.